This is the Monday, July 18th, 2016 episode of The History Author Show. Visit our iHeartRadio channel or subscribe on iTunes to enjoy a brand new interview every Monday morning, as well as Classical Wisdom Wednesdays and History in Five Fridays. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor. Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline, on the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys, oh, New York ain't New York anymore. Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. Today, we're strapping our time machine to a canal boat and sailing down the modern marvel of early American commerce, the Erie Canal. The story of that 360-mile slash between Lake Erie and the Hudson River isn't just one of engineers and backbreaking, dangerous manual labor. The title of today's book demonstrates its broad scope. It's called Heaven's Ditch, God, Gold, and Murder on the Erie Canal. By the time the canal opened in 1825, the nation had fallen in love with this man-made waterway across New York State. Along its shores, Freemasons conducted their secret rituals. Evangelical revival broke out, as did acts of violence and drunkenness. Joseph Smith founded the Church of Latter-day Saints, and Americans found a new appreciation of nature. Fortunes boomed and busted. Lives were lost as was America's casual acceptance of drunkenness on the job. Bringing us this tale is Jack Kelly, a journalist, novelist, and New York Foundation for the Arts fellow. His previous books include Band of Giants, which earned the Daughters of the American Revolution's History Award Medal. You can find him everywhere from the Wall Street Journal to the History Channel, or by clicking over to heavensditch.com, where he follows the birth of the canal from its groundbreaking in 1817 to its completion in 1825. 1817 means next year we'll start celebrating the bicentennial of this amazing public works project. Okay, now that we've purchased our ticket on a paddleboat, let's meet Jack Kelly and wend our way west from Albany on Heaven's Ditch. I'm joined on the line by Jack Kelly, author of Heaven's Ditch, God, Gold, and Murder on the Erie Canal. Thank you so much for making time to talk with the History Author Show. Great to be with you, Dean. You grew up along the Erie Canal route next to Palmyra, Joseph Smith's home. Tell us how the waterway lodges itself in your young mind. What did it mean to grow up along this route? And how did that lead you eventually to writing Heaven's Ditch? Well, when I was a kid back in the 50s, the canal was still pretty active as a commercial waterway. It was just a pretty short trip down to the locks, and we would sit by the locks, and you'd see these huge barges come in, and then they would sort of magically rise up, and then the doors would slowly open. It's almost like a ritual, and the barge would continue down at the new level. For a kid, that was a fascinating thing to watch. We also would often drive past Hill Camorra, which is just south of Palmyra. 
And anytime we went past, someone would always say, that's where he found the golden tablets. They always call them golden tablets. I know they're actually golden plates. But And I didn't know who Joseph Smith was. I didn't know what the golden tablets were about. But it was a very fascinating thing. When, you know, if you're a kid and you find a spoon buried out in your backyard, <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's a big deal. <laughs> uh, so the, the idea of finding these golden plates uh, you know, down in the earth and Later on, you know, as I started doing research on it, I realized that I'd grown up in the next town over from one of the great religious uh, innovators in history. And that sort of was the seed that started off the idea of uh, going into these different aspects of the Erie Canal. You may not have found any gold buried in the ground, but the Erie Canal stretching across New York really was a boon for the area. It really was a source of great wealth. It took a real vision. Heaven's Ditch opens with merchant Jesse Hawley frustrated with the lack of transportation in upstate New York. How do you get your things to market when you can't find a river? You have to drag it through the mud. There's no roads. We always have to put ourselves in the mind of the early America. We had an author on about the book, George Washington's Journey, about him trying to travel the New Republic. It's hard to get around. So Mr. Hawley has this vision for a canal, but you write that visions are cheap. It's the challenge of getting that vision made into reality. And that's not easy. People don't say to him, this is a great idea. President Thomas Jefferson isn't alone. He calls the idea a little short of madness. So talk about how Hawley gets the idea and how he overcomes the naysayers. Well, Hawley was an interesting character because he really saw the geography of the region and put the different aspects of it together. There were several facts that people had contemplated for a long time. One was that Lake Erie and Buffalo, which was just a small village at that time on Lake Erie, is at the same level as all the other Great Lakes all the way out to Chicago, which really didn't even exist at that time. If you can put a boat in Lake Erie you can have access to all the resources of the central part of the country. Albany is at sea level. So Albany has easy access to New York City and to all the East Coast where the population settlements were. But to get from Albany to Buffalo, there was a wall of the Appalachian Mountains in between, and that's what had pretty much kept the American settlements as coastal settlements for a couple hundred years during the colonial era. There happened to be one gap in that wall, and that was where the Mohawk River flowed through. It was a unique, several hundred yards wide gap. Hawley saw that if you could make an artificial river going through that gap, connect by water instead of by road, Albany to Buffalo, you would have easy access from all of the East Coast to all the central part of the country. And the possibilities you know, were endless. As you point out, the roads were awful in those days. And for a long time afterwards, we developed canals and then railroads long before we had really efficient roads. So the ability, particularly for bulk things like flour and wheat, which is what Hawley was uh, involved in, to move those by water was a great boon. And lumber and coal and iron ore eventually all could be moved very, very economically by water. And that was the whole key of the canal. People who read or listened to my interview with T.H. Breen on George Washington's journey, as you're talking there about the challenge facing the average merchant, I thought, 
if the president of the United States, and not just any president, George Washington, the great general, if he couldn't get around the country easily, imagine you're just a simple farmer and you're trying to get your wheat from somewhere like Syracuse all the way down to New York City. And This is really an innovation that, to me, I think of it from the average person's perspective and how it takes on almost this mystical aspect as all the heavens part of Heaven's Ditch is happening around it. Yeah, what you say about transportation is very true. And one of the things that struck me about the canal once the canal was finished was before the canal to go west. And there were pioneers that were going out west to Ohio and Indiana and so forth. It was like going across the ocean. It was like taking a leap off a cliff because once you went out there, you weren't coming back and your relatives or friends from the east were not going to come out and visit you. And you were unlikely to get mail and you were unlikely to have much communication with the east. Once the canal was finished, in a matter of a decade or so, suddenly to go west was, well, you could go out there and settle, and if you didn't like it, you could come back, or you could come back and visit, as people did, or people could come out and visit you, and you got mail every day, and it really connected people. So it gave a lot of people, and I mean lots of people, the comfort level and the courage to go west, and it really sparked the first really huge movement of population toward the West in the settlement of Ohio, Michigan, all the way out to you know Minneapolis and Illinois. So it played a huge role in the way the country developed. It sows some seeds of unintended consequences. Not all such seeds are bad. These are the seeds of the abolitionist movement. I learned reading Heaven's Ditch that by opening the interior of the country to these settlements and to easy transit, for the first time we start to refer to the South as the South, what the states that would later secede. You forget that. I mean, in New Jersey, we had East and West New Jersey, and you look at this little sliver of a state and you say, why did they look at it that way? Or you look at Upper Canada, names like that from the these days, the early colonial period, it's a whole different way of looking at the country. So now we're saying, well, that's the West. You know, we're able to access it. Those mountains aren't any longer blocking the way. Another man with vision here that we meet in Heaven's Ditch is DeWitt Clinton, the governor of New York. He has a vision for the positive impact the canal will have on the Union. So describe that a little. This man, we see his name all over if you're in the New York area. But what impact did he have here on the canal? Well, DeWitt Clinton became the great champion of the canal. As you mentioned earlier, there were plenty of skeptics when the idea was first proposed, including Thomas Jefferson, even people in New York who thought that it was going to be a big waste of money because it was a 360-mile canal, and the longest canal in the country was 25 miles, and it was going to be mostly through wilderness or frontier areas, very lightly settled virgin forests, marshlands, and so forth. They had no idea even if it was technically possible to dig a canal and make it succeed like that. And so DeWitt Clinton became the champion who first tried to get federal money. They, they weren't able to get federal money and then convinced the state legislature to put up, I think it was about a third of the entire capital of the state hmm. invested in this one project and uh, with no certainty of success. And it was an enormous risk. And it was very possible they would not have succeeded. You know, they would have spent huge amounts of capital and ended up with nothing. So he was the man with the vision and pushed it through and it became his legacy. Unfortunately, it didn't live much longer after the canal was finished, but was the great figure that was associated with the canal. He used to call it Clinton's Ditch. <laughs> 
they didn't spend money on public works back then. They didn't even agree on the need for public works or how much to spend. They certainly didn't have the credit rating to go around the world borrowing money. The federal government wasn't into printing money back then to pay for these projects. So even something today that we would think as basic as trying to get money for a project like this, it just didn't exist. So this is something that in the book, it really sucks you back into so many facets. I don't want people to get the idea that it's just a story about people digging out the ditch. There are many different aspects of it. For instance, on the cover, you have a photo of evangelist Charles Finney. Talk about the outpouring of religious fervor, the heaven in heaven's ditch, that kind of weaves its way into the story of the canal. Yeah, that really gets at the heart of what I was writing about. And it goes back to what you had just said before of how the canal changed the orientation of the country from east-west to north-south. Finney was the Billy Graham of the 19th century, and he was really the man who originated a lot of the revival techniques of religious enthusiasm that swept through the country in the early part of the 1800s. There's a myth that goes around that the founders were very pious religious men who wanted to found a Christian country, which is really not true. The era of the revolution was really one of the low points of religion in America. But after 1800, religion came sweeping back, and Finney was one of the prime movers of reviving the enthusiasm for Protestant religion. He was an enormously charismatic, powerful preacher, and he had a message of, you can do it yourself. You don't have to wait, as the Puritans had thought and taught, that you need to wait for God to give you salvation. Finney said, no, you can go out and earn it for yourself. You can take hold of salvation. And that was a very appealing message to people, and it spread through upstate New York and well beyond that. And out of Finney's preaching began these reform movements of which temperance was one of them, more regard for the Sabbath, but in particular, abolition of slavery. So a lot of the people that went west, lived in western New York and then moved farther west, were abolitionists and were determined to get rid of slavery. And they had that moral fervor that came from the religious revivals. And so they were not going to compromise. They were not going to just politely ask for it. They were demanding the end of slavery, and the Southerners dug in their heels, and it was the beginning of the march towards civil war. Although we have all these massive social changes like that, this outpouring of the Second Great Revival, the heaven again in heaven's ditch, you had a line that made me chuckle. You wrote, there is no poetry in cement. So this book is so much more than the engineering of the canal, but in an era before steam engines, before dynamite, the engineering shouldn't be overlooked. And if somebody loves that part of it, they're certainly going to get their fill of that here. So talk about the feats of technology, the innovations. I was thinking earlier when you were talking about Jesse Hawley, knowing that those lakes are all on the same level, there's no satellite photos, certainly. There's barely maps. So how do they overcome the fact that they're very limited in their technology and information? It's been proposed that the American character really was formed by the frontier. And when you look at the Erie Canal, it's a very good example of that because a lot of the engineers that worked on the canal, they were not trained as engineers. There were no engineering schools in America at the time. They were mostly just teachers or magistrates, educated people, but not educated in the technical aspects of engineering. The key thing to a canal 
is the idea of the level. If you're surveying for building lots, for example, if you're off by an inch, it doesn't really make that much of a difference. If you're building a house in those days and you know, you're off by half an inch, uh, you just pull the board over and nail it down. But if you're making a canal and your surveying is off by an inch in 10 miles or 50 miles, the canal isn't going to work because the canal has to be perfectly level and the water will determine that level. One of the great surveyors of the canal, a man named James Geddes, as an experiment, surveyed a circle around Oneida Lake in upstate New York, 100 miles, and he came back to where he started. Anyone had gone up and down hills and valleys and so forth. In 100 miles, he was off by an inch and a half. That was a type of precision that really had been unknown before. It was unneeded, but now it was needed, and these guys had to learn that kind of precision in order to design a canal that would work. And that was really the great achievement of the canal was just getting that level of precision and then building the whole works of the canal. And a canal is not really, you know, I call it heaven's ditch. It's called Clinton's ditch. But a canal is more than a ditch. It's a very dynamic hydraulic system. So for every change of level, you have to have locks, and those locks are worked by hydraulics. Water is constantly coming in and flowing out, and there has to be sources of water. Every river you go over has to have an aqueduct. Every stream you go over has to have a culvert, and all these things have to be planned out. And so for these people who were mostly frontier people, they had the ingenuity. They had dealt with improvising in the face of nature and the face of various problems that come up in the frontier. And they were able to apply that, build the canal. And from there, really, American civil engineering took off and became much more systematized. But during the building of the Erie Canal, it was really seat of the pants, improvisation. And the fact that it worked is really one of the great, amazing technical achievements in our history. My guest is author Jack Kelly, and the book is Heaven's Ditch, God, Gold, and Murder on the Erie Canal. Chris Morrow of Northshire Bookstore in Saratoga Springs, New York, writes, quote, An adventure story disguised as the history of the Erie Canal. Heaven's Ditch is compelling reading, fascinating history, and a character-driven chronicle of a lost America. It's great when a book takes you on an adventure that you don't expect. Certainly when I picked up Heaven's Ditch, I found that it was doing just that as I got into the book and found, wow, I didn't expect there to be so many people. I didn't expect the germs, the sprouts of so many things like engineering. Today, we take that very much for granted. Today, we go through a canal maybe and we don't even know we've gone through it because it just feels so routine. You brought all of these into a single narrative, and with an eye towards interviewing you, I wondered how much of a challenge that was corralling so many different threads into what became Heaven's Ditch, and were you ever tempted to kind of throw up your arms a little bit and spin off one of the particular stories into a book of its own? Well, that certainly is a temptation, Ian, and I did find there was somewhat of a challenge to try to incorporate both the technical and sort of social political issues of the canal and the religious innovation that sprouted up along its route. You mentioned the characters. In all my writing, I've tried, you know, to me, history is characters, it's people. And I think if you can see history through 
the perspective of specific people and their their lives and experience it's much more interesting than history as social movements, mass forces of society, at least it is to me. So I like to look for the people and also the stories that go along with them. And by highlighting them, you know, I think that the narrative tends to fall into place on its own to a certain extent. I put in a certain amount of work on writing the book, that's for sure. <laughs> well, it seems like the editing would have been the hard part because you start going back, I'm sure, and you could go off on one of these revival figures for literally an entire book, as I said, and you limit yeah, it. Yeah, that's absolutely true. <laughs> focus just on the canal. Focus on it as the driving force. You write in the book that the Erie Canal was a psychic highway. So it really gets into people's minds and it kind of moves everybody. You would think it was just going to be a highway of water that goes across the state. So much more than that you learn in the book. One of the impacts it has on society you hinted at before, it's what English novelist Francis Trollope called the alcoholic republic. People may not realize just how much drinking was happening, and not just at home, not just on weekends, but on the job you'd show up. And so I'll ask the question this way because I learned a new term in Heaven's Ditch, and that is, what was St. Monday and why don't we have him anymore? <laughs> <laughs> I sometimes compare... And I actually found a lot of parallels between this period of 1820s and 30s and the 1960s. Both were very much a time of youth, or youth was at the fore. A lot of the movements I talk about in here, the religious and political movements, were youth movements as they were in the 60s. And there was that type of youthful enthusiasm. And just as in the 60s, people had their drugs, young people, People in the 1820s had their drug, but their drug was raw alcohol, and it was whiskey, corn whiskey, but very powerful, and it was, as you mentioned, everybody drank all the time. It just became a social fad that everybody was drinking. Instead of a cup of coffee in the morning, you'd have a glass of whiskey, and then you'd take a break from work. The boss would usually provide whiskey all around. Everybody would have a glass of whiskey. And then when they got done with that casual drinking, then on Sunday, it was their day off, they would maybe go on a little binge. And then Monday, they may not show up at work. And that type of casual approach to life and to work life in particular, as the canal was coming in, that was dying out. Even though the workers on the canal drank very heavily, whiskey was provided on the job. In the 1830s, just five years after the canal was finished, the idea of temperance, of being at work on time, was demanded because now people are going to work in the factories, and you couldn't be drunk, and you couldn't be late, and you couldn't take a day off. You had to be at your machine once the work started up at the factory, and you had to stay there and work. And so there was a great change in America, and I would say it's for the better or worse, was the ill effects of drinking were severe in those days. But it was a change of not only just drinking habits, but of the whole way of life that was going on at that time. So St. Monday was the day when you didn't make it into work on Monday because you had gone on a bender on Sunday. And not just average working people, not just guys digging the canal. You're probably picturing, if you're listening, the 
sort of rough-looking guy, muddy boots. This is a period when another social change, another change in public works is there's not a lot of fresh water. So people were drinking in the morning, even somebody like John Adams. You'd want to purify your water, and that was maybe the only way you could do it. And not just because you'd get an upset stomach like today. This is life and death. But as we move forward in public health, and as the canal helps you move food that's fresher and helps us move equipment, and we learn so many things from building building it, it changes that. And so you say, well, you really don't have the excuse anymore of being able to drink and right. be drunk on the job. Yeah. And as well as that, when the idea of the factory came in, and you have to realize in the early 1800s, there were no factories. Essentially, the first textile factory was just beginning. I mentioned a guy in my book named Sam Patch, who was America's first professional daredevil. And he plays an interesting role in the story, but he was one of the first factory workers ever in America. He, he went into the factories at eight years old, and it was the factories that really changed America from being a country of yeoman farmers and small workshops, you know, a master craftsman who would bring along his apprentices and his journeymen, but only with the idea that they would eventually become masters themselves. Suddenly, people were, and it did happen rather quickly, People had to sell their labor and with no idea of advancing, that they were just surviving by having a factory job. Tremendous changes made for tremendous changes in the country and the way people lived. A lot of turmoil that went on throughout the 19th century. The Industrial Revolution took over. We spoke about the God and gold in the subtitle of Heaven's Ditch. So let's briefly touch upon the murder because as the canal pushes west as it changes, as people are still going on their benders, there is some crime that follows. So tell us a little bit. You have one big story in there, but a bunch of them. So give us an idea of what happens as the canal moves. Well, one story that I tell is one of the interesting political stories in the book. There was a gentleman that lived right on the canal, probably worked on the canal, named William Morgan, and he was a Freemason. But he was kind of a cantankerous guy, and he was thrown out of the, the Masons. So to get revenge, and also he, he had an idea of making money by writing a bestseller, he said, I'll write a book revealing the secrets of the Masons. The Freemasons were a very respectable organization at that time. A lot of the founders, George Washington, Benjamin Franklin, had been Masons. They tended to be a little bit more the upper crust, but working people as well. And he wrote his book revealing these secrets, which were very precious to the Masons. And they kidnapped him and probably murdered him. It's still a mystery to this day what happened to him. But it was known that the Masons, the local Freemasons, kidnapped him and kind of put him on trial, on a secret trial. And he was presumably found guilty and done away with in some way. And this created a huge sensation along the canal region where he had lived of animosity towards Freemasons. And it was a really a conspiracy theory that the Masons were going to take over. They were plotting to get rid of Republican government and install an aristocracy in America. And it gave rise to the anti-Masonic movement, which eventually resulted in the anti-Masonic party, which was the original third party in American politics. And they had the distinction of not only suppressing Freemasonry for a while in America, 
they invented the presidential nominating convention. Parties had never had conventions before the anti-Masonic party had their first presidential convention in for the 1832 election. So that and the other parties took up the. They saw how it, you know, it sort of spurred morale and gave them a lot of publicity. So they took up had had their own convention. So this summer, as we go into the political conventions in July can look back to the anti-Masonic party as the party that actually invented the convention. And when you hear people say the know-nothing party, people like to sort of throw that around. But that had to do with this era and this fight against Freemasonry, the people that were, you know, you're always suspicious of any secret organization, right? And this was a really massive one with powerful people in it. So it gave rise to its own mystique and worries, but it didn't have to do with stupid people. When you think about it, that's how it's used today. But no party would call themselves know nothing about anything. It was about know nothing about these secret organizations. So right. I always chuckle when somebody says, oh, they're the know nothing party. I said, no, that, that really wasn't what it meant. So I, I just, yeah. Well, his, things like yeah. that bug you when you read history, right? <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. But, you know, one, one thing I found interesting, though, was that William Seward, who was one of the really the founders of the Republican Party, expected to be nominated for president in 1860 and was beaten out by Abraham Lincoln. Seward actually had started his career as a anti-Mason, right, in the anti-Masonic Party and was very fervent in that movement upstate. It was not just fanatics. It was, you know, there's some interesting political figures came out of the anti-Masonic movement. It was a kind of a brotherhood. I know William McKinley, he was in a hospital at one point during the Civil War serving, was later the 25th president, and he saw a Mason on one side or the other treat a prisoner. I assume it was must have been a Confederate prisoner, and he treated him well, and he said, why is he treating him so well? Why is he treating him like a brother? And he said, they're Masons, and that's what made him look into it. So all the things later that I I think talking here about the heavens part and heaven's ditch and God, it was really just a brotherhood. It wasn't some of the things that gave rise later to saying it was an almost satanic cult. Yes, that's very true. When you look back, it was particularly in the revolutionary era and well up into the 19th century and continuing today to a certain extent too. The Freemasons were the enlightened people. They were the people who believed in reason and science and forward thinking they engaged in some what we might consider odd rituals and costumes and so forth. A lot of that was just for fun. You know, it was just for the sort of the pageantry that everybody likes. You know, it was a, a form of theater almost rather than some dark, mystical, cult-like aspects of the movement. We are airing this the month your book comes out, July of 2016. Next year in 2017 is the 200th anniversary of the groundbreaking. October 26th of 1825, at 10 a.m. that day, a cannon fires on the Buffalo waterfront, followed by more along the 500 miles to the Atlantic Ocean. Describe the meaning of that occasion and some of the contemporary accounts that you read describing the mood. Well, in the 19th century, and particularly before the Civil War, life for most people was very mundane and dull. And any occasion they had to have a celebration or a festivity, they would pursue it to the hilt. So when the canal opened after eight years of building, and it had opened in sections as they built it, the eastern section would open before they got all the way to Buffalo. But once it was open from Buffalo all the way to Albany and then down to Hudson to New York, they decided to have this huge celebration. They got a flotilla of boats, 
fireworks. The firing of the cannon, they had cannons placed every about 10 or 15 miles or so all the way along the route so that when each group of gunners heard the cannon from the west, they would fire their cannon and the message would be relayed down to New York. And as I point out in the book, you know, it was the first time something very primitive, but something that was happening in the interior became known on the coast 500 miles away in real time, or the equivalent of real time. Before that, it would have been days, weeks to get a message from Buffalo to New York. It was a kind of emblem of what was coming once the telegraph became established in modern communications. It was a great celebration. They brought water from Lake Erie very famously down in a cask to New York Harbor and poured it into the Atlantic Ocean. So that was the marriage of the waters of the interior with the coast and symbolized the connection that the Erie Canal had formed. So yeah, it was a great celebration. What are they planning for the 2017 bicentennial of the canal? They're going to mark the groundbreaking next year with the World Canal Conference, which brings people from all over the world that are connected with or interested in canals, and that's going to be held up in Syracuse, where the Erie Canal Museum is right downtown Syracuse. And what celebrations will be coming down the pike for succeeding years and to celebrate the bicentennial of the opening, I don't know, but I think it's pretty likely they'll have something pretty spectacular, as they did, for example, the centennial of the Brooklyn Bridge. They reproduced the fireworks show that kicked off the Brooklyn Bridge. So I'm looking forward to something pretty spectacular. Maybe some cannons again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would be great. <laughs> Dewitt Clinton, who was always a very curious man, and he thought if somebody would accurately time the various cannon shots, they would be able to determine the speed of sound mm. since it was such a long distance, but uh, nobody did accurately time them. As you said, so many historical figures really make history come to life. And it reminds you, I mean, there's a DeWitt Clinton Park in Manhattan, and there's so many things that are named after him. There's Clinton Avenue that runs up the Palisades in right. Tenafly, New Jersey. So you meet all these figures. It makes them very flesh and blood in Heaven's Ditch. You find yourself rooting for Jesse Hawley. Everybody laughed at his vision, but by the time it lay finished, the laughs are cheers. They're firing cannons. They're really talking about how great the future is for the country. Hawley Brad. New Yorkers had built the longest canal in the least time with the least experience for the least money. So here we sit 199 years later and the canal is so common it's been surpassed really by other methods of transport but you can take a houseboat trip down along its length which is pretty tempting. I always am trying to get my wife to go down the Erie Canal. I say come on this is history right? So even though it's no longer the linchpin of American commerce What's the legacy today of the Erie Canal on our 21st century America? And what can we learn from all these figures and upheavals and changes in Heaven's Ditch? I think one of the most direct lessons of the canal is the way in which people in those days built for the future. DeWitt Clinton wasn't alive very long after the canal was finished, but the canal was built looking to the future, looking 10, 20, 40 years ahead and what it was going to mean for New York and what it was going to mean for the country. And the canal was a tremendous success. In later years, just the tolls from the canal in one year were more than the entire cost of building the canal. Wow. Today, we're in an infrastructure crisis, we're told by most experts. 
and we aren't even spending enough to maintain our infrastructure to say nothing about expanding it as the economy and the country expands. And why that is, it seems to be a mystery to everybody. Why can't we spend to improve our infrastructure, our public works, roads, bridges, harbors, airports, electrical grid, so forth? And I think we could take a lesson from the people that built the Erie Canal and say, you know, this is something we can do now for ourselves, yes, but also for generations to come. They will have a better life because we sacrificed a little bit and had the vision and courage and the generosity to invest in the very things that make people's lives better. To me, that was one of the important lessons of the canal that really is still applicable today, and in some ways even more applicable than it was then, of how we have to come together and agree on public work spending and then go ahead and do it. And it's becoming more and more of a problem every year, and it's something that's sadly being neglected. And I think you learn from the book about a nation of people investing not just money in it, but investing time and paying attention. We hear how many times there is a stimulus bill or there's a spending bill or oftentimes in Bergen County, New Jersey, where I live, every few years, politicians will come and have a ribbon cutting and say, here's our giant check. There's a light rail line called the Bergen-Hudson light rail line. It doesn't go into Bergen County. It's been there forever. <laughs> and really, the infrastructure was better 100 years ago. You could get to New York easier than you can now. And I think people turn away and where does that money go? It doesn't go where they say it's going to go. And then they come back to us a few years later and say, these bridges are still all crumbling. You know, I like to make that sort of counterpoint, which was because of the success of the canal, New York state and many other states went into a canal building frenzy and almost all that money was wasted. And none of those canals made money. And a lot of them were just pork barrel. It was, you know, we want to have a canal because that seems to be the latest thing. And they wasted money building those. The railroads were just over the horizon when the canal was built. So it wasn't long before the railroads were available and canals had a hard time competing with the railroads. The railroads were cheaper to build. They could run year round. Canals were expensive to build and to maintain. So... It is very important and very key, as we learn here in Heaven's Ditch. Jack Kelly, thank you so much for sharing the book with me today. Thank you for being our tour guide along the Erie Canal. This book is a great yarn, and it has a scope that's as broad as the canal itself. Best of luck with it. Thank you very much, Dean. I certainly enjoyed talking with you. Again, the book is Heaven's Ditch, God, Gold, and Murder, on the Erie Canal. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at historyauthor.com or even bookmark the URL off the banner ad on our homepage for all your online purchases. Go to historyauthor.com, click to Amazon, and get to them through there. That way Amazon gives us a small percentage of every purchase you make and it doesn't cost you anything extra. Once again, thank you to Jack Kelly for joining us and for captaining us through the heart of early 19th century America. Please visit him at heavensditch.com. And remember, let us know what you think of the book and the interview on Twitter at History Dean or facebook.com slash history author. That's it for this installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for Classical Wisdom Wednesday, History in Five Friday, and next Monday's all-new interview. And remember, if you do subscribe to us on iTunes, please take a minute to leave a review. Well, until our next trip into the past together, 
Thanks so much for time traveling with us today, and have a great week. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of 